0: If you've got a Bible with you, open with me to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8. Uh, we'll pick up in verse 31 and read down through chapter 9, verse 1 this morning. We've been working our way through Mark's Gospel, and we came last week to really the, the, the climax of Mark's Gospel as we begin to understand the identity of Jesus. Who is he? When Jesus asked the disciples as they traveled to Caesarea Philippi, He says, who do the people say that I am? And they all have a very high regard for Jesus. They say He's a prophet, or He's a reincarnated prophet, or one of the prophets, right? That He's Elijah, or John the Baptist, or He's in a line of prophets who have brought God's Word to us. And then when Jesus turns to Peter and says, but who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, You are the anointed one, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the one for whom we have been waiting. And on the heels of Peter's confession, Jesus very quickly tells the disciples and the crowds, everyone who's following him, about the nature of his messiahship. In other words, he says, he doesn't say, no, Peter, you've got it wrong. He says, Peter, you've got it right. Let me tell you what kind of messiah I have come to be. And so, in chapter eight, verse thirty-one, down through chapter nine, verse one, we find Jesus, the nature of his messiahship, and how it informs and shapes our understanding of discipleship, right? And so, I'm going to break. I, I had the best of intentions, right, of covering all of this in one week. I'm going to actually break it into two weeks. As I got into the weekend and kept writing, thought they're not going to like me very much if I do all of this in one week, because we'd be here for a long time. So we're going to break this into two weeks. So let's pick up this week in chapter 8, verse 31, and read down through chapter 9, verse 1 together. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man gain or give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, as we dive into this text this morning, we're just going to jump straight in and see what Jesus says about himself, about the nature of who he was as the prophet, as the priest and as the king who would bring truth, who would minister with compassion and who would rule Who would rule with righteousness. What does Jesus say about himself? And the first thing I want to see in this text is this. Is that when Jesus speaks of himself and the nature of his rule as the true king. He says this. that The Messiah must suffer and die. This is what Jesus says about himself. See in verse 29 Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. The long awaited Messiah. The true prophet, priest and king. And immediately in verse 31. Jesus begins to unfold for Peter, not only Peter and the initial 12, but to the crowd as well, everyone who was gathered around him, everyone who was following Jesus. So essentially, Jesus doesn't hold the ace up his sleeve and kind of wait and then say, hey, come follow me, I'll make your life great, and boom, oh, by the way, listen, this is who I really am. Jesus drops it on them the very outset. So the crowds are listening to him as Jesus says, I am the king who's come to end all kings, but then he teaches them about the nature of his rule. And there's several things that he says about himself here that I want us to drill down into in great detail this morning. The first one is this. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man. And he says, the Son of Man must suffer and die, be rejected be tortured, and be killed. That's what he says about himself. Now, the Son of Man is not some veiled term that Jesus uses to describe himself. Because at first glance, you might say, well, of course he's the Son of Man. He had a physical, natural birth. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is drawing on an Old Testament image that shows up in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 where Daniel has the prophet Daniel has this vision, and he sees one like unto a Son of Man who is approaching the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days, God the Father, the Son of Man, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And when the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days, God the Father bestows upon this Son of Man all power and authority and dominion and a kingdom and rule. So that all peoples, it says in Daniel seven fourteen, all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So in ancient Judaism, when they thought about the Son of Man, they thought about one who had a throne. They thought about one who had power. They thought about someone with authority. They thought about someone who... Rule who would come and conquer and vanquish all evil and set everything right. That's who they were thinking of when they thought of the Son of Man. And until Jesus says this, no one connected the idea of the Son of Man, dominion, power, rule, and authority with rejection, suffering, and death. Even though there were hints of it all throughout the Old Testament in places like Isaiah, Right, sprinkled throughout Isaiah, particularly in Isaiah 53, you have this mysterious suffering servant who's going to be rejected, upon whom the transgressions of the people would fall, with uh, upon, uh, uh, the, the one whom the Lord would be pleased to crush. You see this, but they didn't make the connection until Jesus says it here. So the Son of Man, power, authority, and rule, must suffer and die. He must suffer many things and be killed. Think about the kind of suffering that Jesus would endure. He would endure. He would endure the the, the emotional suffering of rejection. Have you ever been rejected? (laughs) Right? So Jesus is able to identify full scale with a broad spectrum of human reality. I've been rejected. I'm sure you've been rejected. Some of you are like, I've never been rejected because... Like, I'm just good enough, smart enough, and on it, people like me, right? But if you've ever experienced rejection, you know the emotional pain that comes along with it. And Jesus understood that well. He also experienced physical suffering. He knew what it was like to bleed, As he was whipped and flesh was torn from his back and he was beaten, he was pierced and ultimately killed. But he also had another layer of suffering that he experienced. It's a spiritual suffering of bearing the eternal and enormous weight of sin at the cross. So Jesus would understand the emotional suffering of rejection. He would understand the physical suffering of pain. And he would understand the spiritual suffering of bearing the weight of the sins of humanity as they fell upon him and the father turned his face away, no longer looking upon his son. So Jesus understood suffering well. Now, because no one had made this connection between authority, power, and rule, and suffering, rejection, and death, until Jesus says this word. Notice Peter's response. What does Peter do? Uh-uh, right? He gets in Jesus' face and he rebukes him. Now that word rebuke is a strong word. Whenever you read a Mark's gospel and you read about Jesus rebuking unclean spirits or Jesus rebuking demons, it's the same word, right? Zoe says, amen, right? It's the same word, the exact same word. And so Jesus Exercising authority and sending out these unclean spirits, binding the authority of these demons, is the same way that Peter approaches Jesus and says, "Uh uh-uh, Jesus, right? It's not suffering and death. We're going to Jerusalem. We're going to a throne. We're going to rule. We're going to drive out and do away with evil, make everything right. That's Peter's response when Jesus makes this Connection. And Jesus says, listen, I am the Messiah. I am the king to end every king. To rule over all things. To defeat all evil and set everything right. But I'm going to Jerusalem not to take power, but to lose it. Not to sit on a throne, but to be hung on a cross. That's the kind of king I am. That's what Jesus says. Now notice as well. So, son of man, suffer rejection, die. But notice this little four letter word, must. Must. See, Jesus doesn't say that he might die. Jesus says doesn't say, hey, listen, I'm upsetting people in power. So listen, guys, there's a good chance they're gonna whack me right? That's not what he says. Jesus is not speaking about potentiality here. The word must speaks to necessity. There's not a potential that Jesus might die because he upsets some very high and, high-ranking and high and powerful people, but Jesus says, I must, the Son of Man, the one with authority, rule, and dominion must experience these things, All right? And so, the church throughout centuries has wrestled with that whole idea of why must Jesus die? And there have been all kinds of theories that have been written about this. I'm going to give you three of them this morning and talk about their effects in our lives. Right? So when we think about why must Jesus die, let me give you three answers to that. First of all, Jesus must die so that you and I could experience true, real love. We could experience real love. Listen, there was an Anglican theologian years ago named William Vanstone, and he wrote a book in which he speaks of love, the nature of love. And in that book, Vanstone says, all human beings know the difference. Even those who had a horrible upbringing may never have experienced much love as a child. Every human being understands the difference between false and true love. And there's a difference between those two things. He says, in a relationship marked by false love, he says, your aim is to the other person to fulfill your happiness. So you want to milk the other person for all they're worth. You want to leverage the other person to bring you joy and fulfillment and happiness. As a result, your affection or your love for them is conditional. So you love the person so long as they are providing you what you want, so long as they're meeting your needs, so long as they're affirming you. And it's non-vulnerable, right? So there's always things that you hold back from them so you can cut your losses if necessary so you don't become too attached. You don't become too tied or bound up with them. That's false love. Using people to fulfill your desires, to find your happiness. But in a relationship marked by true love, your aim is not to use the other person to make yourself happy, but to use yourself to make the other person happy. To bring the other person joy. So you spend yourself for the happiness of the other person. Because your greatest joy is their joy. To see them fulfilled. To see them flourishing. That's true love. So as a result, your affection for them is unconditional. So whether or not they're meeting your needs, whether or not they're affirming you and providing for you, you're still moving towards them with love and affection. And it's also vulnerable, right? You don't hold anything back. You spend everything. You open up every recess and every compartment of your life. Whether the person is meeting your needs and you don't hold anything back, you give it all away. Now, Vanstone, listen, he goes on to say that the problem that we have with as humanity with this idea of true love, of real love, over and against false love, is that no one's fully capable of loving that way. None of us is. None of us can really give all of ourselves away to another person unconditionally to ensure that their happiness, right? That we're using ourselves to make them joyful, to make them happy, right? We desperately want this kind of love, but we can't give it, right? There might be measures of it in our life, but there's not the fullness of it. There may be some people who are more healthy on one end of the spectrum and some people who are less healthy, but even the more healthy individuals have some mixture of false or fake love in the way that they engage in relationships around them, right? We're all looking for it, but we can't give it. We need someone as a result who can love us this way, radically, unconditionally, and vulnerably, not for their sake, but for ours. And so the question is, who can love like that? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, I want you to read what what the Apostle Paul has to say. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. What is that? That's true love. That you and I are incapable of giving fully, but that we should strive after. And then he goes on in verse 5 to say, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Son of Man, authority, rule, power, dominion, must suffer and die, give himself away, empty himself, That's what Paul's talking about here. And he empties himself, not for his sake, but for yours. Not for his sake, but for mine. So that you and I could experience true, real, authentic love. And not have to settle for false, fake, hypocritical love. We can know what it's like to be loved unconditionally where He sees all of our flaws and our faults and we don't add anything to Him. Do you recognize that, church? That you loving God doesn't add any ounce of value to Him. It demonstrates His value. but doesn't add anything to Him. And yet He unconditionally gives Himself, empties Himself for us. And gives it all away. It doesn't hold anything back even to the point of death, So that we can know Him intimately and experience real, true love. And listen, the more that you taste of that kind of love, the more you move toward the spectrum of being a healthy individual who is imperfectly, yes, but to some degree able to move towards others in that way as well. so we could experience real love. Second of all, so we could experience real forgiveness. Real forgiveness. Now, think for a moment about how forgiveness works on a human level. Okay? Think about it economically and think about it emotionally. Economically. Okay? If somebody, if, if you hurt someone, if you make someone mad, okay, you go out there, you write some kind of Facebook post and some unhealthy individual shows up at your house with a baseball bat, smash. Your windshield, okay? So they show up. Your your windshield is busted. It's cratered. It's got to be replaced, okay? So your auto insurance and your deductible, or if you just have liability, right? You're out of pocket for that whole thing, right? And so you have two choices. One, you can either go to the individual and say, "I have a debt now that you created, and so you must pay in order to relieve the debt. You've got to pay for the debt. Here's, I need four hundred dollars to replace my windshield." Or you can choose to absorb the debt yourself and forgive the person, but there's still a cost because that windshield still has to be replaced. Now Only now you've got to pay the cost as opposed to forcing the other person to pay the cost. right? So on an economic level, it works that way, but also on an emotional level. Because if somebody really hurts you, if they really ruin your reputation, if they really rob you of an opportunity, Somebody really wounds you. You have two choices. Either you can go to them and say, you must pay for the pain that you've caused. And oftentimes we do that by calculating within our hearts and our minds opportunities to take vengeance for ourselves. So you cause me pain, I will cause you pain, and as I cause you pain, then you will work off and pay off the debt of my pain that you created in my life. But what we don't recognize is that in that process, what you're doing is only becoming more and more like the person who hurt you. So that's one option. The second option is this, is to absorb the debt, is to absorb the pain. Here's what I mean. So that every time you have a vengeful thought, every time you think about exercising revenge, causing pain to the people who caused you pain, and you repent from it. There's a cost to that. There's an emotional cost to that. It takes an emotional toll in your life. It hurts. Because you want to see Justice. So there's still a cost, but you're, if you're going to forgive them, you're choosing to pay it rather than forcing them to pay it. That's how human forgiveness works at both an economic and an emotional level. So listen, if human forgiveness works this way, right, it always involves suffering for the forgiver. And the only hope right, for being reconciled to someone, listen, this is true, the only hope for being reconciled to someone right, is not to go to them and say, you hurt me, I'm going to, ex- to demand payment from you, so you cause me pain, I'm going to create pain for you, right, as I challenge you and want you to fess up to what you did, right, that's, that's not going to happen. What that's going to do is set that person on the defensive, and so what you must do if you really want to reconcile the relationship is you've got to go to the person and say, I'm going to choose to absorb and forgive, and yet what you did was still evil. What you did was still wrong but I'm going to extend forgiveness. That's the only hope you have of reconciling that relationship. The only hope. Now listen, if that's the way that human forgiveness works, right, either I have to pay the debt or someone else has to pay the debt, then listen, just, it, it, there, there's, within the context of human relationships, there is a webbing that reflects the relationship between God and us as well. And the same is true for God. If there's going to be real forgiveness that we experience, not where we're working it off to pay him back, but whether it's it's free for us, then the debt had to be absorbed by him. And where does that debt get absorbed other than the cross? Listen to what Paul says again in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, Paul says. Paul says that I could experience real forgiveness so that you could experience real forgiveness. What God has done for us in the Son of Man, power, authority, and dominion, must suffer and die, be rejected, abused, and killed. What God has done is He's taken your sin, the debt that you owed, and He's nailed it to the cross, absorbing it in His Son so that you could have pardon, so that you could experience forgiveness and not constantly be wondering when He's going to come collect. So real love, real forgiveness, but third, so that we could experience real freedom. Real freedom. See, I want you to notice that not only was Jesus' death necessary, but the manner of death was necessary. Jesus said, I must die, but he also must die at the hands of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. In conjunction with the Roman authorities who had the right then to crucify him and hang him on the cross. But consider what led to Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus was strung up on the cross by rightful and religious authorities. Chief priests, elders, and scribes. And these are individuals who should have been standing up for justice who carried out an act of injustice. See, Jesus knew what it was like to be whipped. He knew what it was like to stand up to power and to be struck down. He was a victim of corrupt and unjust power structures in His arrest, His trial, and execution. And yet through all of that, through all of that, Paul goes on in Colossians 2.15 to say, not only did he cancel our legal debt, but also he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You're like, so what does that have to do with this? Listen, when Peter comes to Jesus and he says, "Uh uh-uh, this isn't going to happen, Jesus. You're going to a throne, not to a cross, Jesus. You're going to, right... Everything's moving up and to the right, not down and to the left, Jesus. That's not how this thing works. And Jesus rebukes him and says, what does he say? Get behind me, or the old King James, get thee, right? Behind me, Satan. Now, is what Jesus is saying there, that what Peter has done is in that moment, he's kind of grew, grew, grew a couple of horns, right? He's got a forked tongue, a tail coming out, and a pitchfork now, and that Peter's just like this gross distortion of what he looked like. He just transformed into this Halloween costume. That's not what Jesus is saying. I believe what Jesus is saying is that under every attitude, under all opposition to Jesus' mission of being the one with power, authority, and dominion who would be rejected, suffer, and die. Any opposition to that at a human level ultimately is rooted from and stemmed in opposition at a spiritual level. There are rulers and powers and authorities underneath all opposition to God. Spiritual power, spiritual rulers. And, what, and so when Peter's saying, Jesus, uh-uh, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, he's saying, you've adopted the same mindset as the chief of the fallen angels who fell from heaven because he wanted to assert himself into the place of God or over God, which is the same attitude that the religious leaders in Jesus' day shared. So underneath all all human distortions and abuses and corruptions of power and authority stand spiritual corruption of power and authority. See, under every act that would oppress and exploit people, there are demonic forces. And when Jesus goes to the cross, here's what Jesus does. He submits himself to that. And what does he do? He wins through losing. He got power through service and sacrifice. He received all the riches and glory by giving away all of his wealth. He won our forgiveness and freedom by turning the world's values on their heads because the world says, listen, it glorifies power, it glorifies recognition, it glorifies privilege, it glorifies status, it glorifies wealth and money. And in Jesus emptying himself of all those things, he overthrows the world system that would exalt them. He overthrows the rulers and powers underneath him. So their power, listen church, this is important. This is good stuff, right? Their power is broken over those who trust in Christ. And here's why, because listen, you see in Jesus, the worst thing that corrupt power can do to you in this life is kill you. It's the worst thing they can do to you. They can throw you in prison or they can kill you. And you see in Jesus that whenever they do, what will God do? He will raise you from the dead. To be with him forever. See, nothing, if, if, if the fear of death is broken in your life, then there is nothing that has power over you when you think about the implications of Jesus' death and his resurrection. so even if you use your voice, even if you use your actions, even if you do things that would put you in the crosshairs of people who have authority and power, right? What Jesus says is, listen, the worst thing they can do is kill you. And if they do, then you'll live with me. We'll raise you from the dead. That's glorious. And it's freeing, church. It's freeing. And apart from seeing Jesus disarming those spiritual powers and authorities, you will always be bound by fear. And never be able to do what we'll talk about next week, is taking up your cross, denying yourself, and following him. Because you'll always be bound by the fear of man. Which ultimately underneath that is a spiritual reality. I love it. So real, real love, real forgiveness, and real freedom. Now, if you understand those things, that this is who Jesus says he is, the one with all dominion, authority, and power who would give it all away and be stripped and rejected and suffer and die. Then listen, the one, this is who Jesus says he is. So how does it under affect the way that That we follow him, what it means to be his disciple. We're going to look at more next week, but I'll show you one thing this week. Okay? This is where I ran, I just ran out of paper and time for you this morning. But I'll show you one thing this week. And it's this. Listen, church, what this leads us to do is to build our identity on the gospel. To build our identity on the gospel. Let me show you what I mean by that. In verse 35, Jesus listen to what he says. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now, the word for life there in the text is the Greek word psyche, right, from which we get our word psychology, right? Psychology. So the Greek word psyche, and that Greek word literally meant your personhood, your selfhood, your personality, or your identity, who you saw yourself to be whenever you looked in the mirror. And so when Jesus says whoever would save his psyche will lose it, but whoever loses his psyche for my sake and the Gospels will save it. What he's not saying is this, right? He's not saying you must lose your individual identity, your sense of personhood, your sense of selfhood, but that you can no longer build your sense of identity, personhood, or selfhood on gaining things in this world. That's why he goes on in verse 6 to say, right? What does he say? For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his, same word there, psyche, forfeit his soul? His life, his personhood. Jesus says, don't build your life on gaining things in this world. And listen, every culture that Christianity has found itself planted in from its inception to today tells those individuals a story about where they can find their identity. Where they can find their truest selves. Listen, in traditional cultures, traditional culture said you are nobody. You have no personhood, selfhood, or identity unless you gain a family and children. That's what traditional culture said. Okay? So you're measured by the size of your family. Not necessarily the size of your home, but the size of your family. Okay? It measured both men and women that way. Women more so, but men also. Do you have sons who can carry on the family name? Right? So you're measured by your family and your children. But modern culture says, no, 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 no! you're not measured by your family and your kids, but you're measured by a fulfilling and satisfying career, a vocation. That's where you find your real security and significance. That's where you find your true identity. And in our culture, right, you're, you're taught that, This is the just pervasive winds that swirl in our world. You're taught that your truest identity, your truest self, is not found from looking at anything outside of you, but it's found from looking within you and finding your deepest desires and then living those things out. See, every culture has a story that it tells you about where you will find meaning, purpose, and identity in life. But Jesus says, if you build your identity on something that you can gain, then when that thing that you've gained is threatened, you will fall apart. You will come unraveled. In so, much so as to even say this, that what Jesus is saying is not this. Like, okay, you, so you've built your life on family and children, or you've built your life on career and possessions and property, right? Advancements and achievements and promotions. Or you've built your life on living out your deepest desires right? So you can gain your autonomy and independence. You've built your life on all those things. Jesus is not saying you need to trade all that in and build your life on going to church and build your life on reading your Bible and build your life on living a good, upstanding, and moral life. That's not what he's saying. Let me be real clear. We live in a culture full of elder brothers. You know what I mean by that? The story of the prodigal son The elder brother sits back with his arms crossed saying, listen, I have slaved away all of my life, honoring you with every choice and decision I made. You owe me, dad. So it's not what Jesus is saying. He doesn't say become an elder brother. He's also saying not become a younger brother. Right? So what is he saying then here? What Jesus means is this. Listen, he says, look at the order of the text. Jesus doesn't say, listen, if you will clean your life up, if you will get really good at being good, okay, if you will dot all the I's and cross all the T's, if you will deny yourself and take up your cross, then I will go to the cross for you, then I will suffer and die in your place, then, that's not what he says. Look at the order of the text. Jesus says, rather, I'm going to the cross for you. I'm going to relinquish myself of all my power and privilege. I'm going to give myself away and empty myself. I'm going to die. Now, take up your cross and follow me. See, those in traditional religious cultures, and the buckle of the Bible belt, they tend to get that flipped around oftentimes. And to say, if you will take up your cross and follow Jesus, then he will forgive you, you'll experience his love, and you'll find freedom. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't get those things backwards. I'm going to the cross for you so that you could experience real love, so that you could experience real forgiveness, so that you could experience real freedom, and then you can take up your cross and follow me, denying yourself. So what this means is this, church. Your identity, my identity as a follower of Jesus is not rooted in what what you do for God, but what He has done for you. What He has done for you. And it's only out of this new identity that you receive standing with God, right? Rather than trying to achieve standing with God that you can then deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Him. So out of that identity comes this activity. And we'll look at that more next week. But I want to press a little further into the identity piece with the time we have remaining. Okay, Jesus is that following him is about exchanging false identities. We build for ourselves by in receiving a true identity built on Jesus, who he is, and what he's come to do for us in the gospel. I love the fact that he says the gospel there. right? Because the gospel is good news, not good advice. I've said it before. right? So the gospel spells, right, uh, spells religion with two little word, two little letters, these letters, D-O, do. While every other religion in the world spells it with four, right? Or, or I'm sorry, every other religion in the world spells it with those two letters, D-O. While the gospel spells it with done, D-O-N-E. Right? Because every one of us, like we have two choices when it comes to our identity. We, we, can either, we can either achieve an identity for ourselves by what we do, or we can receive an identity from God by what He has done. A psyche an understanding of our personhood, of who we are. But for, and for many of us, we've been trying all of our lives to achieve. Achieve, 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 achieve. So as a result, what we've done is we've lived our lives as a series of proofs, trying to prove to everyone else and to ourselves that we're acceptable. Trying to prove to everyone else and ourselves how smart we are, how sophisticated we are, okay? How cultured we are, or maybe for some of us, how uncultured we are, Right? We're trying to prove to everyone around us how simple and satisfied we are, how assertive or attractive, how independent and self-made, how wealthy and wise, how powerful and prestigious. And then for some of us, we're like, I've been trying all my life to prove to everyone that I have nothing to prove. But you know what? You still have something to prove. You're proving to everyone that you don't have anything to prove. Okay? We're trying to live our lives as a series of proofs. And if you're living to prove something to someone, you're living to achieve an identity for yourself rather than receiving one on the basis of what's been done for you. And that's what the gospel offers. It offers you an understanding of your personhood, of your selfhood, of your identity that does not hinge upon whether or not you were a success, whether or not you were a failure. But it hinges on the love of God bringing forgiveness and freedom in your life and adopting you into the, God's family as a son or daughter. So you see, the invitation of Jesus is to give up on your self-improvement approach to God, of coming to God constantly saying, God, listen, I've gotten better in this area, and I've gotten better in this area, I feel good about myself, but in this area, I still really need to grow, so I don't feel really good about myself today. Right? There is this... this bipolar reality that many of us live with who have been trying to achieve a identity for ourselves. And so how does this work? How do we build our identity on the gospel? Let me give you one thing and then we're done this morning. You have to learn to look at yourself through the lenses of what God has done on your behalf. I've got this old pair of, of sunglasses, these old frames, okay? And they have interchangeable lenses in them. Depending upon what lenses I put into them, it determines not what I see, because I'm still seeing the same things, right? But it determines how I see them. And listen, whenever you embrace What God has done for you through repentance and faith, what you find is you put on the lenses of the gospel of receiving an identity, not achieving an identity. All of a sudden, you begin to see everything, including yourself, differently. You're not seeing different stuff. You're seeing the same successes, you're seeing the same failures, but the way in which you see them, how you see them is now different. Because your sense of self doesn't hinge on the promotion that you received or were passed over for, it doesn't hinge upon the grades that you got, right, straight A's or the D or the C or even the F that you may have made. I made some of those in my college career, particularly in the field of math. Right? It doesn't hinge upon that any longer. But you see yourself. Even you can look at the worst things that you have done. The most heinous acts that you've committed. And while you grieve over them, they don't define you any longer. That's what's at stake here. When Jesus says, listen, if you want to save your psyche, you're going to lose it. If you want to build for yourself something, it's going to be temporal, and it's going to fall to pieces. But if you're willing to give up all the identities that you've built for yourself based upon your deepest desires, based upon the cultural expectations, or based upon your own standards, then ultimately you'll find an identity You'll find a psyche, a personhood that can never be stripped away and will never erode. Because of that, you'll have great confidence and unshakable security. I'm going to close with this story. There's a guy by the name of Trevor Noah. Uh, He hosts The Daily Show um, here on American television. He's a native South African, and he was born in the era of apartheid. He was born to one parent. He had a a black mother and a white father. And because he grew up under the era of apartheid in South Africa, his father essentially left the picture because his mother and father knew that to be seen with, uh, uh, with, with with, with them together would mean that his dad would spend time in prison. And so as a result, his dad vacated the home for the protection of his family. And he, he reflected on that as he emerged into his adult years, as he became successful in his career, and all these things began to happen. And, and as he reflected upon that, this, I want you to hear what he had to say about that time that he spent away from his father. And then one day would we'll be reunited with him. He says, as people, we can try it, to deny it, but being chosen is probably one of the most wonderful feelings you can experience as a human being. I think a lot of the time that we're all, that's all we're doing. We're going through life trying to be chosen. We're trying to be chosen in relationship. We try to be chosen in a job. We try to be chosen in a group of people or a community. And that being chosen gives us a sense of belonging. It makes us feel like we matter. And that's where parents play a big role, he says, because when we are chosen by our parents, that becomes the foundation of how we see ourselves in the world. So for me, I always knew I was chosen by my mom And I knew my dad loved me, but because I had lost contact with him for so long for various reasons, I didn't exactly know if he still chose me or wanted me. Then to get to a point when you meet a man after 10 years, and you realize that not only is he still seeing himself as my father, but more importantly, was following everything that I did in my life. That's a wonderful feeling, a feeling that I think and I wish everyone would have, and that is to know that they are They mean something to someone who is in essence one half of what you are. And listen, church, if the experience of being chosen by our earthly parents who are just image bearers of God is foundational to how we see ourselves in this world world, how much more so is the experience of knowing that we've been chosen by our Heavenly Father, adopted into His family, received as His sons and His daughters, and now heirs of His kingdom, along with our elder brother Jesus, because He was the Son of Man who suffered and died how much more so will that give us an unshakable security and rock-solid identity that whenever every other cultural narrative comes along we can look it square in the face and say no i will not define myself that way i will not build a psyche for myself try to hold on to that by what i am doing because something has been done for me that nothing on the face of this earth can compare with compete with or replace So look at yourself through those lenses as one who's been chosen when you're tempted, when you're tempted to see yourself as one who does not matter because you did not measure up. So Jesus is the Son of Man, has all power, dominion, and authority. and He gave it all away so you could know real love, you can know real forgiveness, and you can know real freedom. So build your life on that, church. Build your life on that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for the good news of Jesus Christ. That he did not come and say, if we would get really good at being good, then he would give his life for us. But he came and gave his life for us and says, now I invite you to come build your life on what's been done on your behalf. Father, we want to celebrate that this morning through the Lord's table and receiving communion. And as we do, may our heart continue to reflect upon maybe false sources of identity that we have chosen for ourselves, places that we have tried to construct a personhood apart from you. And that, Father, as we come to the table this morning, that we would repent of all those false identities and that we'd embrace the one true one that can give us security and everything that our heart longs for. May we know real freedom, freedom from sin. May we know real forgiveness that our pardon has been proclaimed and our debt has been erased. May we know real love, one who has given himself for us. needing nothing from us in return. As we take of the bread and the cup this morning, Father, may You remind us that it was Your Son's blood that was shed. It was Your Son's body that was broken. That we may enjoy all of these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.